week. We've been past few weeks and will for a few more uh, that seeks to inspire and equip us to live the life of discipleship. Because you know this as well as I do, that our faith is not an 11 o'clock Sunday faith. It's not a I am willing to show up at the same time with the same group of people kind of faith. It's, it's a way of living that we follow Jesus with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And that is a 24-hour kind of situation. And that is something that is, gives us life and life to the fullest. And that's the call of Jesus, that we become something, that we become disciples. And so we are journeying on this journey of discipleship. Uh, we've been looking through the words of Jesus and now into some of the teachings of the New Testament letters. We're going to be in 1 Timothy today. I'm going to invite you, uh, the words will be on the screen, but if you have a Bible around you, there should be some in the pews as well. You might mark the spot for a little bit later in our time together. This is the first letter that Paul sends to Timothy, his protege, who is taking care of the church in Ephesus while Paul continues his missionary journeys. I'm going to invite you to hear verses 6 through 19. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. As for those in the present age who are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. The first book that I remember capturing my heart, just capturing my heart. We read each afternoon after lunch 
and the circle rug of Miss Oliver's third grade class. She'd sit us all around, and we'd read a little bit each day from Where the Red Fern Grows. Anybody ever read Where the Red Fern Grows? There's a lot of good movies. One of them has Dave Matthews in it, which is perfect. It captured my heart. I just loved every day I would sit there, just my eyes open wide, just listening to this book. I'd never heard or read anything like it. It's the story, no spoilers, I won't spoil it for you. Granted, the book came out a long time ago. That's on you, not me. But um, little Billy Coleman growing up in the Ozark Mountains. And all he wanted to do was get a couple of coon dogs and spend his time catching raccoons. And so you'll read in the book... uh, a little bit about it, but Billy came up with some plans to get some money to get uh, two, I believe they're red-blooded tick hounds or something like that. Is that right, Charlton? And they were little little Ann and old Dan. Cutest dogs you could ever think about. And he was so excited about it. Now, the problem is, is a puppy is not going to do what you want it to do until you train it. And if you don't know that, I've got a puppy at my house that I'll let you see And if you could train it, I might give you a dollar for it. So here's the problem little Billy had with, with his wonderful new dogs, little Ann and old Dan. See, he wanted to train them to hunt and tree a raccoon, to get the raccoon up the tree so that he could then, you know, take care of it. But how do you train a dog to get a raccoon and smell a raccoon without having a raccoon for him to smell? So here's the conundrum. So Billy's job is to hunt a raccoon himself so that he can then get his dogs to learn how to help him. And so his dad's got a plan. Uh, His dad came up with a little trap, built him a little raccoon trap, and it really sounded preposterous. And I remember listening to it and trying to visualize it in my mind in the third grade. So what they would do is they'd go out all around uh, the woods outside of their house, and they would find these hollow logs, and they'd drill these holes in them a little bit bigger than a raccoon paw. And then his dad had him bring a bunch of penny nails and a hammer. And that what they would do is around that hole, they would hammer in the nails around the circumference in a, at an angle so that they pointed inward towards the hole. And in each hole, he had Billy snip a little circle of tin and drop it right in that hole. And there's your raccoon trap. See, here's what would happen. Raccoons apparently love shiny things. I know none of us are like that, but the raccoons, they love shiny things. And so as the sun is going down or by the light of the moon, uh, the little piece of tin would glint there in the light, and the raccoon would be drawn to it, stick its hand in there, and grab it with its little paw. And with its paw clenched, every time he tried to pull it out, he would get pierced by the nails and he'd be stuck. Now, Billy didn't think this would work at all. How in the world am I going to... Dad, he said. Can't they just let go and set themselves free? Yes, his father answered, but they won't. A raccoon won't ever let go of that piece of tin, even if it means his death. Lo and behold, day after day, Billy and his dad go out, and there's a raccoon clutching to this piece of tin with all this little raccoon joy, only to turn into a pelt to train his dogs. All that raccoon had to do was let go to be free. But when the time comes, he will choose that shiny tin circle over his own life almost every time. I don't know about you, but I recognize that impulse. Do you? I recognize that impulse in me. Something shiny catches my eye. 
and the tunnel vision sets in. Maybe I'm sitting there, uh, and uh, all of a sudden I see an ad for something I never knew existed, but apparently I've always wanted it all my life. It's the one thing that will bring me happiness and joy and all the security I ever wanted, and I have to have it. Forget the fact that I'm late for this or that, or I don't have the money to buy it. Here we go, MasterCard. It's mine. I'll be happy if I get it. Or on the other hand, I might, I might, with something I already have, just clutch it with all my might, thinking, if I lose this, if I don't use this well, if I, if I let it slip away, I lose my hope of happiness, or I'm going to lose the security that I have for my future. And I don't want that to happen, so I cling. It can happen with money. It can happen with time. It can happen with your hearts. Oh, parents, fathers, hear this. We can cling to our hearts in front of our children and our wives a little too tightly. And when we find ourselves consumed like that, we're like Billy Coleman's little raccoon, which is now a pelt to train dogs, clutching to that shiny tin circle. And there we are, as happy as can be. Look what I've got. I've got it. But we don't see that the danger's coming. And it never crosses our mind that there might be another way. A way in which we open our hands and don't become a training pelt and live. When it comes to the relationship between an Ozark raccoon and a shiny piece of tin, there are two ways to approach that life. With a clenched paw or an open hand. And Paul's letter, first letter to Timothy, essentially gives us the idea that the same is true for us. Now, there are two ways to approach our life, with a closed fist or an open hand. You see, in 1 Timothy, it's a letter that Paul is sending to give advice to Timothy. You see, Timothy is a young man that Paul picked up along his missionary journeys. Paul, as he went to go start churches and spread the gospel all around the known world, was loved to bring people along with him to help him and train him up. That's a good word for us, too, when we're going to do ministry, train people up. And Timothy was one of those people. And there, uh, Paul leaves Timothy there at the church at Ephesus and says, my job is to go out and spread the gospel. I want you to help this church grow and bloom in Jesus Christ. And then Timothy naturally runs into some issues. There are some people that come in and they say, well, we've got it all figured out. Uh, Jesus is all about this secret knowledge that I have for you. They come in, they say, you know, it's all about if you're rich, you're blessed. And so Paul writes him a letter to encourage him and tell him, here are some things that you need to teach the church. There's examples of all those kinds of things going on. And here in chapter 6, Paul gives Timothy to share with the church some practical advice about something that really uh, impacts everybody's life in the church and impacts all of our lives too, and that is money. And here in chapter 6, we see this almost bullet point list of Christian teaching about money. And in it, Paul describes the two ways of relating to our wealth and possessions, closed or an open hand. Every one of us that deal, deal with money in some way or another, uh, either we want it or we want to keep it. <laughs> and so here's what Paul says. Paul describes these two ways this way. And I'll just give you the bullet points on this. Uh, he talks about uh, those who want to be rich and those who are already rich. Um, and, and he says that in one way of life with a closed fist, we let go of contentment. He so talks about contentment in verse 8, that It is good to be godly and content, and that money can disrupt that. Y'all might remember John D. Rockefeller. Maybe you don't remember him precisely, because I think he was probably 
uh, not making his, his profits too long ago, but um, he was, uh, started Standard Oil in the early 1900s, and he's considered maybe the, one of the first billionaires. And I haven't done the math on this. Maybe somebody will, that if you adjust for inflation and currency and all that, he might still have been the richest person to ever live. And John D. Rockefeller was interviewed by a reporter one time, and they asked him, how much money is enough? Do you remember what he said? Just a little more. Just a little more. Well, that's always the case, right? Just a little more, just a little more. But Paul invites uh, Timothy to teach the church about contentment. He says, letting your soul be settled with what God has provided for you. And from there, uh, from there you can find the blessing. He talks about temptation in verse 9. He says that people can get trapped by many senseless pressures and that, and that riches and money can bring about great temptations. All you have to do is watch the news for business leaders and even pastors or church leaders who, who get a little bit taste of a little bit more money and then they want a little more and a little more. And before they know it, maybe they make the choice. They turn around and they've done something quite untoward uh, and wrong to get a hold of the money. It wouldn't be a big deal. I mean, I'll put this back before the treasurer counts it or the CFO counts it. All these little things, you see the temptation for more. You know, I was just talking to a couple of y'all about, I had this, um, I had this little addiction to diet Mountain Dew from Parker's, not from the bottle, but from Parker's and the fountain drinks. And uh, uh, a lot of times I run into church members there and, and I see a lot of people there. It's like, um, you want to go see somebody, you go to the rest of pick Parker's and you find half the church. Um, but no, invariably what, what I'll see on a, on a lot of occasions is I'm checking out with my Diet Mountain Dew. If you use the Parker's card, you get 30%, 30 cents off. It's perfect. Not that I'm greedy or anything. Oh, my goodness. But somebody multiple times a week will check out, and they'll pass by, they'll pass by the lottery tickets, and they'll come back and they'll say, hold on, just give me about five of those real quick. Not that there's anything wrong with what they're doing. I don't know what they're doing. I have no idea. But the temptation for more, do you see? It's the temptation for more. Paul talks about pride in verse 17. That sometimes we can, our money can be a source of pride and we can lord it over others. We can make it a status over people who don't have it. Or maybe we can forget that God is the author and giver of all things and we can feel like we've done something quite high and mighty to get this for ourselves. Thank you very much. And quite frankly, maybe people have worked very hard for their money. The Bible talks about that. But it's that heart matter where people forget that God is the one who allows us the skill and the effort and blesses us. Paul talks about pride as a danger of money. Paul also talks about the uncertainty of wealth and why when we place our hope in wealth and riches that it's such an uncertain thing. All you have to do, all you have to do is watch the fluctuations of the stock market over time to recognize that money is uncertain. Many of you will remember very vividly uh, what happened to people's financial life and the economy uh, in the past few decades. How all of a sudden everything that we were so certain about came crashing down. And if you're not a stock market person, I invite you to just leave $5 in ones on the counter. Uh, Invite uh, your children to come by and all of a sudden you'll realize, wow, I thought I had $5. My wealth is uncertain. And Paul tells us also in verse 10, he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Have you heard, you've heard that before, haven't you? But you, a lot of times, I used to hear it wrong. Uh, people would say it wrong. They said money is the root of all evil is what people would say. Now, that's not what the Bible says. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Did you, money is morally neutral. Money is morally neutral. It doesn't have a morality. It's what we do with it that matters. You can use money for horrible things. I'm sure you can think of that. But you can also use money for fantastic things. 
everything that God gives you, you could use for bad things or fantastic things. I mean, for, if anybody's ever been treated at Candler Hospital, you can thank a group of Methodists who used their money for God's glory for good things because that's a Methodist hospital founded by the Methodist Church. And example after example, uh, many of the schools in our country originated because Christian people gave of themselves for the education of others. You can do fantastic things with your money. You can make somebody smile with your time, with your heart, with your energy. You can also do horrible things. It's not money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. In fact, God allows us to make provision for ourselves and for our families and for a reasonable future. God allows us, the Bible says there in 1 Timothy, God allows us resources to do things for our enjoyment. God also allows us resources to bless other people with and to bless the kingdom of God with. And so Paul talks about these things on the one hand that are dangers and difficulties if we clutch and hold tight. But he also talks about on the other end the open hand, the liberation of generosity, of our lives that comes with generosity. He says, set your hopes on God who richly provides us with everything for our own enjoyment in verse 17. In verse 17 he also says, do good. He also says in verse 17, be rich in good works. And again, be generous and ready to share. That is the life that looks like with with an open hand that we are seeking God who provides that we're doing good and good works and generous and ready to share. That is the vision that Paul wants Timothy to teach to the church as they're having issues and dealing with their money. I want to read to you this uh, a little bit from this book. This is a book called Abundant. It's by a guy named Ted Harper. I got this book. I went, a church member invited me to a, a little two-day retreat with, uh, I think it was like four other couples. Um, me and Amanda went. Amanda and I went. Okay. Um, it's called The Journey of Gener- Generosity. It's a little small group thing where we talk about just the joy of the generosity of God and how we can manifest that in our lives. Um, and at first I went in there, I thought, they will make a, I'm going to go in there. Every time I hear church people talking about money, um, they're going to talk about money, tell me what Jesus says, and then all of a sudden they're going to pass that plate around again and tell me why I need to give them money. They didn't do that at all. It was nothing like that. It was just open, vulnerable, beautiful conversation uh, about the Spirit of God calling us to generous living. And I was so inspired by it. And they they gave me this book, um, and I want to read just a second uh, of it for you from page 35. Mm, Todd says, I've never met an unhappy, generous person. If we truly believe the Bible, that shouldn't surprise us. One of the most frequently quoted Bible verses about money comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The word blessed sounds pretty high and holy, but the actual Greek word from it was translated, it means to make happy. In other words, it is more happy-making to give. And in my experience, I can't think of a single example where that hasn't proven to be true. But that's just one verse. There are more than 2,300 verses in the Bible about money. Jesus spoke about money more than any other topic. He said more about money than about heaven or hell. There's more written in the Bible about money than written about prayer and faith combined. Clearly, money is a big deal to God. So the question all of us who love him have to address is, do I really believe what the Bible teaches about money? And if so, what am I going to do about it? So what does the Bible actually say about money? Lots. But its message could be summarized with a couple of simple sentences. Be careful and be generous. Be careful because earthly success could equal spiritual failure. And the best way to be careful is to hold your money loosely, to be generous to be generous. 
there's a lot of teaching about money, and I want to assure you the same way that I walked into that small group with a thought, I don't, I don't have an ask for you today. I don't want anything from you. The church doesn't want anything from you. This isn't about what we want from you. This is about what we want for you. We want something for you, something for your life, and it's found at the very end of Timothy uh, chapter 6 where it, it says uh, that do all this to take hold of the life that is really life. Do good, be generous, share, so that you may take hold of the life that is really life. Open your hand and don't hold your things so tightly so that you may take hold of the life that is really life. That tells me something. That tells me that there's a life that's not really a life at all. You can just infer that right out. But there is a life. There is a life that is truly life, and it matters how we hold on to the things that God has entrusted with us. If we open our hand, we have a free hand to grab a hold. But if your hands are full, what are you going to do when the opportunity passes you by? It's not about something that we want from you. It's something we want for you because I want to stand before you, and I want to tell you on behalf of the church, on behalf of the Lord, that what I want for you, for every single one of you and all those whom you know and love and every person in the world is to have the freedom of spirit to grab a hold of life that is truly life so that nobody in this church is misled to think that they're going to find that in one way when we all know the scriptures tell us that you're going to find the life that you can be truly alive and truly live for God and truly live powerfully and joyfully and fully in another way. It is our responsibility and our joy to tell you, open your hand for my goodness. You'll have a hand free to grab a hold of life that is truly life. I want none of us to live a life that is not truly alive. And apparently how we hold our hands matters. And so really quickly, I hear all that. And and every time I hear in these letters, if you read at the end of these letters of Paul and don't take into account the whole thing, sometimes you get a little confused. Because it sounds like, we just read that passage, that there's a bunch of things we're not to do and a bunch of things we are to do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. But do this, do that, do that. But if if we read it that way, we're actually missing something. Y'all remember Bob Newhart? Does anybody ever watch Bob Newhart? I like Bob Newhart. He's a funny guy. He was on this show, a sketch comedy show. I can't remember which one. It wasn't too long ago. And Bob Newhart, towards the end of his career, he was playing a psychiatrist. Maybe you saw this. I don't know. And so, you know, he's got that really gentle way of speaking. And so a woman walks into Bob Newhart's psychiatrist office, and she just, he says, what's wrong? And she unloads all of these crazy problems. Everything makes her nervous. She's scared of everything. And, uh, and, it's, and it's all over the place. And Bob Newhart says, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yes, oh, I understand. I understand. And she finishes this long uh, list of everything that makes her nervous. And he says, okay, there are two words that I tell to most of my patients. And they really help them get over their fears and anxieties. Just two words. Most people never have to come back for a second visit. Just two words. Would you like to hear those two words? And she said, oh, yes. Oh, yes, I'd love to hear those two words. And he leaned forward and looked her square in the eye, and he said, stop it. Just stop it. But it makes me nervous. Stop. Don't do that anymore. It's easier said than done sometimes to do some things, isn't it? Just stop. Okay, be generous. Just go do that. Awesome. But, but like that raccoon, remember Billy Coleman's dad says, uh, they could let go, but they won't. It just won't. So there's something in our hearts that, that shows us 
that, that's a little too big for our lives. And, and it's like what we need is we need a vision that's bigger than this circle of tin. If this represents all that I've ever wanted, if this represents everything I think I will ever need, do you think I'm ever going to let go of it? No. Until I recognize that there is something greater and something bigger and something worth more and something more secure in my life, I will always hold on to this. But once I know, then I will always feel free to let go. And what I want you to see, and this is for you great Bible scholars out there, if you open up your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6, you'll notice that he talks about those who want to be rich, and then he talks about a whole bunch of other things. And in the mid, at the end, he talks about those who are rich. There's something in the middle of the rich sandwich. And that is a doxology. It's called a doxology because it praises God and ends with amen. He says, but you, man of God, I charge you to give yourself to godliness and endurance and faithfulness and hold on to the confession that you made, which was in Christ Jesus, the only sovereign, the true King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who is life eternal, the only one who dwells in unapproachable life, the only one to all whom glory and eternal dominion belong forever. God. How is it that I can begin to see more than this? It's when I set my eyes on God and I devote my heart to Jesus Christ. And I view him as my one and primary goal of my heart. That as I walk towards Jesus Christ, as I walk with Jesus Christ, that I see that I am more secure in his nail-scarred hands than I could ever be in my cut hands grabbing onto anything that I ever could. That Jesus Christ, who loved the world so much and you and for me, died with open hands to let go of even his life that he might generously give of himself that we could live. Jesus Christ, who the scriptures remind us, uh, was at the beginning and will be at the end when he returns the most secure thing that we could ever have. And if I can trust that, and if I can believe that, then there is nothing that this could represent that I would have to clutch so tightly that I might turn around and see Billy Coleman coming with a billy club. So free to open my hand and be generous and to share. So it's more, my friends, than just behavior modification. It's more than preacher said I got to do good. I probably should give more to the church. You can do that if the Lord calls you to. I care about you opening your hands so that you can take a hold of life that is truly life. And it might be a couple quick ways that this might work for you is maybe you could just take a moment and take a small segment of what you have and offer thanks for it. Dear God, thank you that you shared this with me that I might use it to live today. Thank you. Thank you, God, for sharing this with me. Even though I earned it, thank you for sharing it with me that I might feed my family today or that I might pay my power bill today. Thank you, God, for sharing this with me that I might use it for enjoyment, as the Bible says. Thank you, God, for giving this to me that it might pass through my hands and into the hands of someone else. Thank you, God, that you would allow me to be such a tool that you'd entrust this with me so that I could bless you, or I could bless them, or I could bless them. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for giving this to me so that I might know the joy of what it means to be happy-making, to be blessed. Maybe, maybe this didn't come to me for my good at all. Maybe I'm not supposed to enjoy it as money or things. Maybe today, this that came to me is meant to give me the joy of giving and sharing with somebody else. 
There are two ways of life. Raccoon taught us. Timothy teaches us. One lived with a clenched fist where we stare down at what represents all that we ever wanted, unaware that death comes at the other end, or an open hand that is free, free to hold nothing so tightly and then grab a hold of life that is truly life in Jesus Christ. Disciples are generous, not because they have to be, not because the preacher told them to be, but because it wells up from within their soul, because they follow after the one who gave all, and that's the one who we want to be like. We share, we give, we offer ourselves to others with our money, with our time, with our attention, with our hearts, and all that God ever gave. There's a song we sang earlier in the service. It's one of my favorites. It says, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And may that be our song of generous disciples. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the grace that shows us another way and a great and wonderful thing to grab a hold of. Give us an image and an impression by your Holy Spirit today of life that is truly life so that we might see where we are clinging too hard to anything else and that we might make that right. Father, I pray for anyone here who is holding on too tightly to their schedules or to the, something that happened in a relationship something that they have or don't have. Maybe somebody's hanging very tightly to an offense and it's cutting into their hands. They're holding it so tightly. Father, I pray that you would minister to them at this time, that you would impress upon them by your Holy Spirit the great joy of letting go and opening their hands. And Father, I pray that every one of us might know the true joy that is living life that is truly life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite you uh, as